Before we start, I have to confess that the episode that you're about to listen was recorded in October 10th. I was on the road in a conference and I met this awesome scientist that she agreed to participate in this Science Stories episode. And I have to apologize to her and to all of you because the quality of the audio is not great. But still, it's a great episode. And Mandy is super interesting. He's a super interesting uh, scientist. So please enjoy this episode. Uh, and I also have to confess that the music was added afterwards. I just added the music because we, we didn't have the whole equipment. So it's not recorded live, the music. Like it, we didn't play the music in the moment. We, but that's it. No more confessions. Welcome to Science Stories. everybody this is a special this is a really special episode of science stories since i'm in the road and i'm with a really special guest that i met recently and she was kind enough to accept on the go to be part of science stories so thank you so much i'm here with dr mande holford can you please introduce yourself and tell us where we are please hi everyone uh, this is mandy and we are at the marine biological laboratory for the aquatic models conference and that's where i met mateo thank you so much can you please provide a, a little bit of background of your your professor where and all that i work at um, hunter college in new york city part of the city university of new york and i also have an appointment at the american museum of natural history also in New York. They're on opposite sides of Central Park, both on the upper, up, uptown, east side, uptown, west side. And you work with venomous sea snails. Can you tell us, I really like a phrase that I read from your from one of your articles that says, everything can be a venom, only the dose makes the difference between a poisoning and non-poisoning substance. This is a famous phrase in, in venom. Yes. Um, venom, it's based on dosage. So toxins, or how much toxins you have in your system will be take how uh, virulent the reaction will be. And so for us in the venom world, because we see venom everywhere, <laughs> we consider everything a potential venom with toxic um, applications. <laughs> but is it true that anything can be a venom? So for example, even super high, 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 high doses of right. water can kill you, right? Right, yes. All right, so now specifics. <laughs> anything can have the, um, the appearance of being toxic. Right? So chocolate, which I love. You eat too much chocolate, you'll get sick. Alcohol, which a lot of people love. If <laughs> you drink too much, you'll get sick. But venom itself has um, specific qualities, one of which is it has to be made by the organism. So when we call an organism venomous, it's because it produces the toxins within it. When we call something poisonous, they don't produce, it, produce the toxins. They have to get it usually from their diet, and it's acquired in, in the system. So a nice phrase that we like to use is, um, if it bites you, then 
it's venomous. If you bite it, then it's poisonous <laughs> because for a venom to work, it also has to pierce the skin. And so it has to bite you. So it has to be delivered through either fangs or stingers or harpoons or all kinds of different kinds of machinery. Thank you for clarifying that. I was going to ask what's the difference between venom and poison. And since you already clarified that, my question is, can you eat a venomous animal and not get sick? You can. It depends again on what kind of animal and what you're doing. So if it's the pufferfish with tetrodotoxin, no, because actually the pufferfish is not venomous, it's poisonous because it gets the tetrodotoxin from a symbiote. And so that would kill you. And that's why if you go to Japan, you have to go to a special place if you're going to eat pufferfish. But um, from other kinds of venomous animals who are actually making the venom, you can ingest it and, it and you'll be fine. Again, it has to pierce and get into the bloodstream usually for it to have um, a deleterious effect, like for it to really hurt you. So you're saying that if I accidentally swallow a snake, which that's never <laughs> going to happen. A baby snake. <laughs> it's not going to do anything to me because it has to pierce me, right? Yes. For the most part, yes. You should be fine because it has not pierced and gotten into your um, uh, peripheral or central nervous system. And then are there any animals that are both venomous and poisonous? Yes, there are a few that are both venomous and poisonous. So um, uh, the pufferfish, like I mentioned again, and then uh, there's another, it's going out of my head, but there's the jellyfish also that, again, is using tetrodotoxin, but it, it makes the tetrodotoxin, but it can also acquire the tetrodotoxin. And does venom, and this is a question that it's been asked by many, many people and many, many friends of mine, does venom or poison become more or less toxic after it goes bad? For example, imagine, imagine venom has an expiration date uh -huh. and it expires. Would you say it becomes more poisonous or more venomous or it becomes less venomous? And the reason I ask is when food get, goes bad, it becomes it's bad toxic. for you. Right? It yeah. becomes toxic. Right. So would venom become more toxic or less toxic? <laughs> So that's a very interesting way of, of looking at it, but I think it's uh, it's more about how toxic uh, chemicals can become if they're left or they go bad. So venom doesn't really go bad because it's inside of always a living animal. And so once the animal dies, it's no longer producing the same toxins, and so it won't have the same potency or effect, right? But if you're talking about poisonous things uh, or like food that goes bad or things like that, those food are then acquiring bacteria and other things that are becoming toxic. Mm -hmm. And so that's why if you eat like food that's been left out forever and ever, it's become something that it wasn't intended to be, and that's what's making it dangerous. <laughs> but what if I extracted venom from a snake, mm -hmm. and I kept it in a little flask, in a vial in, a vial in the lab? Mm -hmm. After four years, would it be more venomous or less venomous? Uh, it depends on where you're keeping it, of course, but because venom itself is made up of mostly proteins and peptides, amino acids, they can break down and degrade. And so after some time, if it's been outside of the animal, it will degrade. And most peptides, uh, venom peptides are cysteine, they have these bonds like Velcro that hold them together. And they're pretty stable, but if they're not held in an environment that's conducive to remaining stable, they'll start to break down. So short answer is no, it won't be more toxic. <laughs> That's the short answer. <laughs> Thank you. It's, you solved a dilemma for so many people. All right. And this is a, a pretty complex question, I guess. How does venom kill? Uh -huh. All right. 
So um, venom kills in many ways, and the, but in a similar fashion is that they attack. Think of it like, a, I like to describe it as a cluster bomb. You know, it's one big bomb that has all these little things that come at you. So venom is one big bomb. It's not one thing, but it's several things. And they work sort of like little um, soldiers going out to attack the important parts of your, your physiology. So I like to say that they attack um, brains, membranes, and uh, the blood, brains, and membranes, right? So they're going for big, important things that we all need in order for us to function. So they kill you by going after and shutting down, usually, um, mechanisms or systems that enable you to do what you do. So when they work like neurotoxins, they either block certain signals. So for example, with the fish in our snails, it blocks the pain signal so the fish doesn't feel pain, and so it, goes in, it doesn't go into fight or flight mode because if the fish could swim away, the snail would never have a meal, right? <laughs> so, so what the venom is actually doing is trying to manipulate signals. It, and it's very good at manipulating signals that will allow it to have a meal. So it causes things that will make you paralyzed, right? It's, and it can do things that makes your blood sort of not clot so that you sort of maybe bleed out. Or, it makes things, or in case of snakes, you have um, compounds that cause blood to clot, so then you die from that. And so you hemorrhage and all of those things. So what they're very good at doing is shutting down the signals that would manipulate how your body normally works and turn that around so that your body doesn't function normally anymore. So this, the main systems that they would attack would be the nervous system, you said? Mm -hmm. The respiratory system, I mm -hmm. guess? And then muscles? Muscles, so yeah. They work on muscles, they work in the blood, they work on membranes. They are very cytotoxic. They can rupture membranes and cause cells to break. And of course, neuronal cells. But much of the work that we know, at least from um, snail peptides, we know from how they've been able to make the nervous system. Are you familiar with the term pound for pound that comes from boxing? Yeah. What is the most venomous animal pound for pound? Pound for pound. I'm, I'm biased. So I'm, of course, going to say uh, Conus geographers because this is a little sea snail that lives in um, the Indo-Pacific, predominantly in the Philippines, but it is extremely, extremely fatal to humans. And so with the venom from this tiny sea snail, you can take down like a 200-pound guy. And it, its nickname is called the cigarette cone because you usually have that long. You'll smoke a cigarette and then you die. <laughs> That's how much time is left. There's no anti-venom for, for treating these, um, if you, we call it get envenomated, like if you get stung by the, the sea snail or harpooned by it. And, but you can be dead within that. How many people do they kill a year, you know? Um, so it's not like uh, snake bites, it's not, which is a real serious neglected disease. Um, I like to say that snail envenomations happen as a, a product of the 1%. So it's usually scuba divers who see a beautiful shell and they want to bring it back up to the surface, so they put it in their scuba suit, but of course, snail doesn't want to leave its home, so it will envenomate the scuba diver, and there you go. We have had incidents also of fishermen who, because the sea snails get caught in the nets, and then they are then envenomated uh, when they're trying to retrieve the catch. But it's not numbers that are that are causing the kind of um, reaction like you would have for snake bites. It's really like low, I would say maybe 10 or 20. And of course, people shouldn't fear being attacked by a snail. It's no. usually the human's mistake, right? right. When, when there is an accident of this sort, right? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. They are snails, after all. So they're not aggressive. And if you pick them up, they be correlated to their shell, and they close the door, basically, which is like an operculum, is part of the shell that they can shut themselves off. And so, yeah. And, and they're nocturnal, for the most part. So they come out at night, when most people are not in on the beach or, or swimming or, or things like that. So it's always human's fault when we interact with nature and it turns out badly, usually. <laughs> and I want to take this opportunity to to promote and, and recommend a podcast I really like. Mm -hmm. Since if since we're talking about animal attacks, right. um, there's a, a podcast that is called Tooth and Claw Podcast yeah. that they describe animal attacks, but they do it from the perspective that they don't demonize the animals, they right. explain what the humans did wrong and how can you prevent, right. and it, so it's really good, it's really entertaining and really educational. Yes. So if any listener is interested in more stories about animal attacks, they can check that podcast yeah. that I, I fully recommend. And I have no affiliation with them, I just yeah. I just like the podcast. Was that? Yeah, you can add snail envenomations to that. <laughs> maybe maybe we can suggest them to do a, an episode about that, and they, exactly. they, should, they should bring you on, yeah, you're the expert on this. Reading your work, I learned that there are 220,000 venomous animals and that you also think that this is an underestimation, which is completely mind-blowing to me because already 220,000 sounds like a lot. Yeah. So you, why do you think this is an underestimation? Yeah. So, yes, people are always surprised when we tell them that there are more venomous animals than you think. Uh, upwards of 200,000. We think of now the estimate is between 15 to 35 of all of animal biodiversity may be venomous, and that's largely because a lot of venomous organisms are insects and bugs, and that's a large majority of the animal kingdom, right? And so um, you can find them in the sea, you can find them you know, on land, you can find them in the air. They're found in every single habitat environment that we, can, that we know, and they're found all throughout the tree of life. So we say venomous is a, a secret sauce that nature brewed and then and then uh, and then spewed a whole bunch of different animals that are able to do it and and for the large part we think it's an underestimation because again we don't know a lot about the biodiversity that's on this planet which is kind of scary thinking about you know the fact that we're going towards a very big loss of biodiversity in a few years and that's the potential to lose a lot of animals, which not only because they're important for what they do to the ecosystem, but these things give us natural products, which help us to make drugs. And so if we want to find out where the new drugs are, we need to preserve some of these animals that would give us ideas for how to get them. And we'll talk a little bit about the drug development uh, that comes from venom studies mm -hmm. a little bit later. But since you brought it up, since you brought it up do, you, do we know what what are the hypotheses behind the origin of venom? Is it? I know it's a really complex uh, question, but do we know how venom originated, or I mean, why the why question is pretty obvious, but yeah. how it originated? No, we don't know why. I mean, or how. Um, the feeling is that, of course, there's an ancestor that had venom that used it for defensive reasons. And then those defensive venoms then became predative venom when I decide, decided, oh, I don't have to just maybe protect myself, but I can actually go out and, and hunt and, and prey on other things. But um, we don't exactly, the, the oldest venomous animals are nadarians, so jellyfish, sea anemones, those kinds of things. Um, and they're more than, I guess, five hundred million years ago, maybe? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's true. <laughs> 
I just know that they're the only the eldest <laughs> ones. Um, but besides that, we're not sure how they evolved. No. Since you say that there are some animals that use venom for that they start using it for predation or for defense, and then start using it for predation, there is a particular case that is the assassin bug, mm -hmm. right? That he has two types of venom, one for predation and one for defense. Mm -hmm. Which one is more potent? Potent for what effect is what you have to ask. Oh. So if it's for keeping the animal safe, the defensive one. If it's for getting a meal, it's the predative one. <laughs> and so this... Um, if you were in... if if you were to be... what was the word that you used? In, envenomated. Envenomated. Oh, lethal to humans. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, Usually it's the um, predative venom that is most lethal to humans. And the same, um, the assassin bug isn't the only one that has, you know, two different um, ways of expressing or what we call metering in venom. So cone snails do this as well, where they have in their one venom duct, a part of the venom duct expresses peptides that are mostly for defensive um, applications, and then the other part is for predative applications. So it's kind of crazy to think that, you know, the snail will shoot out two totally different cocktails of, of toxins based on what's coming at it. It's like, okay, what are you friend or foe? And what are you going to do? <laughs> so, but it's usually the one that's predative, that's the one that has biomedical implications, and the meaning that it could be lethal to, to humans. So we're going to do a little short break, and then when we come back from the break, can you tell us all about this, the sea snails that you study? Sure. And then after the next break, we're going to talk about all your other projects regarding science that are amazing. Okay. All right? Thank you for listening to Science Stories. 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 Attention, everyone, gather round, gather round. Five, six, seven, and tippy toes, tippy toes. I don't see your tippy toes. Oh, come and on, he's having a laugh. Tippy toes, tippy toes. Five, six, seven, and I don't see your tippy toes. Before the break, we were listening to Tippy Toes by Fancy, no, sorry, by Adam Buxton. Buxton? Compilation of people. A lot of people. I'm saying too. <laughs> and, and now we were listening to Summer Renaissance by Beyonce. Why did you pick these songs? Uh, okay, so Tippy Toes is in my head because I have two very young kids. And Sing To is the song, the, the movie that they're currently stuck on. And Summer Renaissance is because it was summer just recently in the States anyway. And this is Beyonce's new album and I absolutely love the whole album, but that song in particular makes me want to dance. And so that's why. <laughs> so can you please tell us about the your study subject, the, the sea snails? So I work on what I think of course are an awesome group of animals um, that are called from the Conidaean family. 
They're made up of cone snails, terebrates, and taurids. And so most of the work in the field was done on cone snails. Um, in the lab that I did my postdoc with Toto Oliveira, I call him the godfather of snails. <laughs> so what we know about these animals are they live, they're pan-tropical, so they're tropical marine, and um, they're found in tropical marine environments all over the world. And like I said before, they're nocturnal, and you can find them in coral reefs, in sandy bottoms, in um, coral bottoms, in muddy bottoms, and but again, they're mostly nocturnal. And so what's fascinating about them is that they, in their in their venom, can produce anywhere of up to 250 different just peptides I'm talking about. So the venom has lots of things. It has small molecules, peptides, proteins, and I focus mostly just on the, the peptides in the venom. And so they give you this arsenal, which is kind of like a pharmacy. It's a pharmacy, it, it could potentially be a pharmacy of compounds um, for, as we said before, manipulating signals. And so in our lab, what we try to do is figure out what are the compounds that are inside of these venom arsenals from these snails, and how do they work at manipulating signals. And in particular, we're looking for signals that are associated with pain and cancer. And so I did most of my postdoc training looking at cone snails. And then when I started my own lab, of course, you have to do something different because you can't just do what everybody else has been doing. Um, we decided to focus, I decided to focus on terebrates. And so terebrates are really cool. They're kind of like the sister cousin to the cone snails. You know, if you have a very famous cousin who's always in the news and then you're the one that's never in the news, those are the terebrates. <laughs> so I started working on them. And we knew nothing, nothing about them. Um, and so I started first building a phylogenetic tree of the terebrates because the way that we used to work on, on getting um, venom from these snails is you go to the beach and you collect as many of the same species as you can find. And then you have to do this very laborious process of um, different kinds of biochemical extractions to figure out what the peptides are. At the time when I was starting to do my postdoc, we just started doing sequencing and all these things. So I thought that perhaps we can use an, um, a different approach. And so it's one in which we use the phylogenetic tree of the snails to have them tell us how the venom evolved over time. And um, uh, it was termed by a colleague in the field, Juan, venomics. So the idea of using modern technology to help us identify how these animals evolve so that we could ask more targeted questions about how their venom evolved and how one venom arsenal might be similar or different to the other one. So now instead of going to the beach and just randomly picking up whatever you want, we now let evolution and diversity guide us into deciding which kind of snails we would study. So the first thing I did was to make a phylogenetic tree of the terebrates, which is basically a family tree of how you're related to your brother, your sister, your mother. These are how these little terebrate snails are related to each other. When we did that, it gave us a roadmap where we saw that not all terebrate snails have the venom apparatus, um, but the tree led us to specific clays that did have the venom apparatus, kind of like follow the yellow brick road with Dorothy. Here we were following the, the black brick road on, on the tree of the terebrate life. And so that was a real breakthrough because when we went to the field, it saved time, it saved money. We only looked for those animals that were in the clays that we knew actively had a venom gland because in order to do transcriptomes, you need a tissue. So if you dissect the animal and there's no tissue, there's no transcriptome. <laughs> so building the tree really was um, our sort of first breakthrough to going to understanding more about how the venom in these animals work. Sorry, this might be a, a basic question, but 
how do you collect these yeah. these animals? And you said they are distributed throughout the, the whole world. So that this means that you have to travel a lot yeah. and and go to awesome places. I imagine yeah. to collect them. Yes. <laughs> Somebody has to do the dirty work. <laughs> yes. So yes, these animals are found, as I said, in tropical environments all over the world. And so we, pre-COVID, we went on expeditions about every year or so. And I did that in collaboration with Philippe Boucher at the Paris Museum of Natural History. So we've gone to Papua New Guinea. We've gone to uh, Mozambique. We've gone to Abu Dhabi. We've been to Panama. And so we've done a lot of collecting in order to get because the, the family tree that we're building is only as good as all of the, the data points that you can put on there, right? It's like if I build a family tree, but I forgot the cousin we don't talk to, or the aunt that your mother doesn't like anymore. <laughs> so you can have a tree, but it won't be an exact tree. So you need to include all the references, even the ones you don't like, in order for you to get really good information on the tree. And so that's why we do all these expeditions, because we want to be sure to gather as many um, specimens as possible from different species. And for terebrids, there's anywhere between four to 700 different terebrids that are known on the world. And the tree that we have now, we have about half of them. So there's a lot of collecting left to do, <laughs> which we will happily sign up for. <laughs> and, and sorry, how do you collect them? Uh, yeah. So you can collect terebrids, um, snorkeling, scuba diving. And so uh, there's a particular species, the Hostula clay or the Hastula family, which you can get right on the beach because they are right at the surf of the intertidal. So you can sit on, you know, on the sand and sort of dig up and you'll see them there. But mostly we're snorkeling or diving to get the animals. What a sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. Snorkeling in the tropics for, <laughs> yeah. for sea snails. That, that's definitely the best part of the job, I, I it's guess. It's one of the best parts. It's one of the best parts, but it's also the hard part because uh, usually, you know, you're, yes, it's cool to be in the tropics and doing all these things, but um, you wake up really early, you're working all day, and then usually because they're nocturnal, there are a few night, night dives or night swims that you have to go through to try to find them. So it's, it's pretty taxing on, on the body, but of course it's fun because you're out in nature in a beautiful, usually in a beautiful place and part of the world and doing something that you absolutely love. So diving during the day and at night around the world in many different places, you must have millions of stories. Right? <laughs> Can you, do, do you mind sharing one or two with us, please? Oh uh, yeah, oh uh, yeah, there's always a story. There's always a story. Um, I'll tell you one, two stories. One kind of scary, one that was freaking us out, and then one that kind of shocked me because it was like, this is what you want. Uh, the scary one happened on my first, one of my first collection trips in Panama at the um, Smithsonian Topical Research Institute. Maybe I shouldn't use names. <laughs> and then, then uh, we went out on the uh, boat with the captain who was not prepared, and we sort of ran out of fuel, which is almost impossible. I mean, the first thing you do is check for fuel, but we ran out of fuel <laughs> on this boat. In the middle, we're in Las Perlas, this archipelago off of uh, Panama, and it's also a very busy route for drug trafficking. Oh. And so there are lots of islands that are not populated, but populated. <laughs> so we were trying to get close to one where we saw some uh, a smoke, like a campsite. 
And as we got closer, um, some guys came out with really big guns, and they're like, "You don't want to stop here." And we're like, "We don't want to stop here. <laughs> we are not stopping you didn't here." Tell me, but there's nails. <laughs> I know. <laughs> we we're only looking for some fuel. We had a flag. We we're like, "It's a science boat. It's science. We have nothing you want." And they're like, "You don't want to stop here." So we're like, "No, we're not going to stop here." So we kept going, and we got to another island, which was a private island um, owned exclusively by some very wealthy person. And again, they're like, "What are you doing here?" We're like, "We're scientists, and we need fuel." And they're like, uh, "You can stay down there by by on the beach." You can't come up, but we'll give you some fuel. And so, of course, that captain and I never worked together again because that was very scary. Especially, it was one of my first trips as chief scientist, you know? So I'm in charge, and I'm responsible for everybody on the boat. And so I was like, if something goes wrong, this is not good. It can't happen like this. But it was very scary at the time to, uh, to run out of fuel in the middle of an archipelago populated with drug runners and with big guns. So it was like, okay, never again. So now the first thing we do is check for fuel. <laughs> exactly. And and you also said you had another story. Oh, so, uh, the other stories, um, when we were in Kamiang, uh, out on our research vessel, or it's not even a research vessel, it's just a dive boat. They're all of the locals. So in Papua New Guinea, um, of all of these little islands are owned by the the people who live there, right? So you have to negotiate with them regardless of whatever be the export license or whatever you have. If you want to go and dive in their waters, you have to negotiate with them. And and so one of the things that they always want to swap for, they come and swap with us for mud crabs and lobsters and all these really really oh delicious. And what they wanted from us was pasta or rice or really? tuna in a can. Which I thought was a little strange, um, but I, I have no idea. I'm not an anthropologist or a sociologist, but to me that struck me really funny. They give us these beautiful woven baskets, which I still have in my house, but what they wanted from us was our pasta pasta or something else. I'm like, you've got mud crabs and lobsters and all of these things, and you want a pasta pasta? It was very strange, but um, I guess globalization, they wanted to be like everybody else, who knows? But we gave them pasta, and I still have my my wonderful basket that I swapped for. for wow. I can't believe it. Yeah. Well, I guess maybe the the fact that it doesn't go bad or something is super precious for them, or I don't know. Wow. No idea. Well, good deal for good you, deal I guess. For us. Yeah. <laughs> so we mentioned that we were going to talk about the possible uses, and I, I don't like the term use of something when you're doing research, but that's mm -hmm. how people understand it, I guess, of venom for society, right? Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that there's been a couple of drugs, or, or several actually, a lot of drugs that have been developed from venom. Mm -hmm. Do you have any examples? And then can you tell us about your research about liver cancer and the seasonal venom, please? Sure. Yeah, everyone's always amazed that um, venom can be used for drug discovery because the thing that kills you can also cure you, right? Seems weird, but it's true. And so again, when we think about manipulating signals, when you think about using venom for drug discovery, it's about manipulating malfunctioning signals, right? So things like pain is a malfunctioning, chronic pain anyway, is a malfunctioning signal where it just isn't stopping. So to find something that will block that neuron from sending the pain signal, 
means that you will prevent it from happening, right? You found a new pain therapy. And so that's one area that we look at in, in the lab. And so from cold snails, the first snail, um, the snail drug on the market is Zyconotide or Preop, which they each use to treat chronic pain in HIV and cancer patients. It sort of, it was like a breakthrough drug because at the time and still, pharmaceutical companies, when they want to look for pain therapies, they look for things that work on opioid receptors which has led to you know, the opioid addiction crisis that we are currently experiencing in the States and all around the world mm -hmm. because um, opioids lead to addiction. They're highly addictive. They're highly yeah. addictive. And so what the snail has shown us is that you can treat pain without targeting the opioid receptor. They work on something totally different, these N-type calcium channels, which, have, which are not linked to uh, the addiction pathway, right? So now you have a cure, let's say, or a treatment for, for chronic pain that doesn't involve working with opioids. So that's fantastic. It's a major, major breakthrough. It does have one very big side effect in that it has to be delivered via a spinal tap. So it's not peripherally active. You can't pop it like a pill. It's not active like in the bloodstream, like morphine is, you know, you can just inject yourself to oblivion. Um, so you have to get it directly into the spinal cord delivered, and so that limits its use to where it can be applied. So one of the things we're doing in the lab is we're trying to find other pain, potential pain peptides from the snail, or peptides from the snails that have pain application, but are also peripherally active. And so we do this in collaboration with the lab Adam Patterich Chang in um, Singapore, where we feed the peptides that we think might have um, analgesic effect, have pain effect, pain um, numbing effect, let's say, um, to, to these uh, fish, uh, fruit flies, not fish, sorry, fruit flies. Um, and so if they're able to ingest it or we inject it peripherally into them and we see a response, it means we've already got past the first barrier, right, in that they might be peripherally active because now we found a compound that is giving us a pain phenotype, or, and it also was delivered in a peripheral manner. Sorry, this might be outside of your... <laughs> yeah. No, 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 this, this is perfect. But how do you know if a um, fly is experiencing pain or not? Okay, yeah. What is the Ooh, test? Very good question. <laughs> very good. So we basically put them in a hot tub. <laughs> so, so we put them in a water bath, and it's avoidance of noxious heat for the most part. So the temperature in the water is about 40 degrees Celsius, and they don't like that. So they will fly away. Um, so they're in this closed chamber, and if they fly down, get too close to the warm water, they don't like it. It causes them some kind of distress or pain, and then they'll fly up. So we, we um, feed them or inject them the peptide, and then we try to see if uh, how long can they stay in the hot tub, basically or do they just jump out right away? Are you finding promising results? Yes, yes, yes. We found one peptide we think who's allowed the, the, the flies to stay and hang out in the hot tub <laughs> for a little bit longer than other peptides. So yes, we're, we're currently now trying to figure out what receptors that, or what that peptide might be targeting that allows them to stay longer. And this is a capitalistic question. If you do this, discover a, a peptide that is a really good pharmaceutical solution, what what do you do with that? Do you do you go for a pattern and try to develop a product yourself, or I don't know, like do you want to make sure that this is available for other people 
what, what, what would be the next step, like the commercial? Because okay. I, I guess pharmaceutical companies are keeping an eye on your research to develop commercial and, of course, get profits, right? Okay. So what, what, is, what is your strategy regarding that? So um, most of the stuff that comes from the lab will be owned by the university, not okay. me necessarily. And so the university will license it to different companies if it becomes something to that point. But you bring up a good point about how drugs are made, especially natural products are made in, from um, how they're discovered and then how they're developed into actual therapeutics. It's not a fast process. It takes years, right? Very long. So the Psychonotide or pre-alt drug was identified, um, the peptide was identified in the 80s in total Oliveira, Godfather of Snails Lab, and then uh, it was approved by the U.S. and the FDA, the Food and Drug Association um, or agency in, in 2004. So that's like 20 wow. years, yeah. right, to make a drug. And most of that time, research and development is done in academia. So academia does a lot of figuring out where's the what is the structure of the peptide, how does it work, is it selective, are there any kind of potential side effects for like off effects. Um, and then when you know all of that, that's when the company is interested because they have most of it solved, right? So they'll come in and then they have to then do the big part of clinical trials, which are really expensive. And so that's where you need a huge influx of money. Um, for you to be able to get a job off the market. Um, and at that point, it's usually where academia will say bye-bye and industry will step in through licensing deals or IP deals or whatever. And then last question before we do an, another short break. Can you tell us about your, your line of research that involves liver cancer? Oh, yes. Please? Yeah. All right. I forgot. I got off track with the pain. <laughs> So, well, liver cancer too is also interesting. So we were curious because malfunctioning signals, right? So in a very reductionist way of thinking about cancer, it, it's kind of like a malfunctioning signal where the, the cells are starting to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow and they're not stopping it to the point where they become malignant and then they're, you know, invading other tissues from the ones that they started in. And so liver cancer is a, one of those. It's sort of a... Um, it's, it's, the incidences of liver cancers are increasing, especially in the state, and the only treatment that's currently available, uh, Zorfenib, is not very selective and it gives a relief, relief in, in the form of maybe extending life for maybe two months, two weeks to two months. So we were curious to see if there was, perhaps we can use this strategy where we know that the peptides from these venoms are very selective. and one of the issues with um, cancer therapies is that they're not very selective. So if you have someone who's been through cancer, you know that they suffer as much as as any as um, in trying to treat the cancer. You're already the the person also suffers greatly because it doesn't look for tumor cells; it looks for all cells. So we're trying to find a way to be selective to just tumor cells and not healthy cells. And because these peptides can be very selective for certain types of channels, we wanted to look for um, channels or receptors or things on the tumor cells that are going to be overexpressed so that the peptides would target the tumor cells and not the healthy cells. And so basically, again, it's using the concept of these, these peptides are very good at manipulating signals. So we wanted to get to things that are on tumors that are signaling that the peptides can then stop it from happening. That's incredible. And so many incredible applications for a probably underlooked Organism, right. right? Like sea snails, yep. nobody, yeah. Exactly. So that's, that's what I love. In the lab, 
I love to focus on things that are understudied and kind of like the underdog, maybe because I'm short, but <laughs> <laughs> but I like to look in areas where people aren't shining the light, sort of, right? So a little bit in the dark. So because to me, discovery science is fascinating. We wouldn't know anything that we know without somebody going, I wonder what that does, and I wonder why that's there, and I wonder what's happening. And that's basically what we're trying to do with Venom, right? We're trying to understand why can a snail eat a fish? <laughs> How is that possible? And why can it do it repeatedly and has been doing it for, you know, millions of years? And so, and how potentially can we use this to our benefit, right? To the benefit of humanity. How can we use what we know, which is that these peptides are very selective, very specific, very fast acting. How can we use that to help develop smarter, um, more selective drugs, basically? We're going to do another short break <laughs> and then we'll, we'll be back with more science stories. Science stories, science stories, science stories, science stories, science stories, science stories. Birds flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me, yeah. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me. Ooh, 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 ooh. And I'm feeling good. I'd go to church every Sunday But teenage love still took my virgin skin And the night after my first time I cried Cause I thought heaven wouldn't let me in Meanwhile, the priest has got a boyfriend And lots of teachers smoke weed after school when All right, we're back with more science stories. And before the break, we were listening to Feeling Good by the great Nina Simone. And now we were listening to, we are listening to No One's in the Room by Jesse Reyes. Why, why did you pick these songs? Okay. So I think they're they're both the same when you think of what they mean, right? So Nina Simone's song, Feeling Good, you hear it anytime, for me anyway, it's an instant smile, and it's like about confidence and about being yourself and nothing can get you down. And similar with Jesse's song, When No One's in the Room, it's about who are you and what makes you feel good and do it when you want to do it. So that's, that's why I put those two. You probably don't know this, but you are the second guest to pick Feeling good by Nina oh, Simone. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great song. Yeah. So I want to cover all the cool things that you do besides research. And there are so many that I'm going to have to speed through them. I'm sorry. But for example, you're really big into science diplomacy. And there's a phrase that I, I like that I read from one of your articles that it says that diplomacy is like a 10 speed bicycle. Most gears never get used. Yeah. Wait, what do you mean by that? So um, when people think of diplomacy, you think of high-level diplomacy, diplomats, governments uh, talking to each other, you know, um, 
very stately things with um, like the president of, of the U.S. coming to speak to the president of Uruguay and blah, blah, things that you think you would never be involved with as a scientist. But actually, there are many tracks to diplomacy. And what science do, we sort of, we're another, we call them, you know, uh, um, it's tier two, basically, diplomacy. Because science itself is a diplomatic tool. When we think about science in general, it's for the benefit of society. And there's not society in the U.S. only, it's society global, global, globally. And so um, for a scientist to act as a diplomat basically means that we're sharing our knowledge in ways that will help to be beneficial to society to deal with issues that are related to science and technology, climate change, food scarcity, cybersecurity, all of those things are things where scientists' expertise are necessary in order for us to come up with policies that are actually sustainable, climate change for sure, <laughs> to help us get through all of these things that are facing us. And so as a science diplomat, with my very good friend, Marga Gual Solara, she's the queen of science diplomacy, got me. It, it, it's about trying to use your science in ways that are a little bit more thinking about how it can be beneficial for society. And not only that, but how you can help policymakers and decision makers understand a bit more of the technology behind some of the decisions that have to be made. Do you think um, policymakers are understanding it a little bit more nowadays? Or is it that, I guess it's a really challenging task that you're trying to achieve, but do you think it's, it's getting somewhere? Yeah, no, I think um, you're sort of forced to see it, right? It's kind of the bull coming at you. And so I think policymakers have not traditionally been trained to think about science and technology issues as potentially diplomatic issues, but they are. Like, so science diplomacy goes way, it wasn't called this, but it goes way back to the old Silk Road, the old Silk Road, which is basically, you know, from China, they were giving us inks and silk, and then from Mesopotamia, they were giving you spices. So it's a technology that was developed by a particular region and then shared. So science diplomacy, even though um, the technical form or the modern way of thinking about it came about in Pugwash when they signed after the big first nuclear bomb was used, they signed a treaty saying a group of scientists got together from all over the world to say, we don't want science to be used in this way ever again. And so that sparked the modern day science diplomacy. But the idea that technology is exchanged all across the world and that science is um, a language of some sort for where we can communicate to help build society and make it better for everyone is not new. But the term science diplomacy definitely is. And, and it came about as a resurgence of, of this idea that because we have these issues that are all very technical and scientific at their core, we need an influx of new voices in policy and decision making. And those voices must come from scientists because they're the ones that have the knowledge and the know-how and the evidence that can help us build sustainable policies. But So it's not that politicians don't know. I think what they need to have expertise in, we can provide, because no one has all the answers, right? It's not to replace politicians, it's to partner with and to build bridges that are going to help everyone to achieve a better planet for, for society in general. Yeah, I feel like scientists can be in a great position to counsel sometimes mm -hmm. and provide insights that other people may not be able to. Right. Dr. Hofford, you also... Dr. Hofford, right? You can call me Mandy. <laughs> Mandy, you also uh, developed 
a video game. Yeah. And I have <laughs> so many questions. Like, why, how? <laughs> Please tell us. <laughs> it, 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 uh, yes, we have a game, learning games company, Killer's Nails, of course, is the name of the company. Because it's based on, um, initially it was based on trying to take what we do in the lab and bring it into classrooms in ways that students would find engaging and want to, you know, um, uh, learn science in this new way. And it's, it's because um, in order for, again, science to really benefit society, we have to teach it, I think, in a way that kids like, right? We have to make it something that's accessible. We have to make sure that they understand why it's important to know science and how it relates to climate, how it relates to energy crisis, how it relates to cyber. And so for me, that meant playing games. Because usually, I grew up playing games. <laughs> I think that when you bring a game to a classroom, kids get excited. And they want to know, oh, can I win? What's the story? What's going on? So it lowers their anxiety level. It ups their fun level. <laughs> and they're ready to go. So we wanted to make um, a company where we made games that told science in a legit way, didn't dumb down the science, but it gave lots of inroads to how science students can, can come to it. And so our first game, Assassins of the Sea, are, of course, it's a, it's a board game. It's like strategy game, kind of like magic, where you have to collect your snails, and then you learn about their venom, and then you try to find a cure, which, which peptide in the venom can cure a, a disease. Um, and so when we started, we did a lot of tabletop games. But now we're doing a lot of immersive games, AR and VR games, because we really want to teach kids that you can be a scientist as well. It's not just about teaching you the knowledge of what science is, but the fact that you can be a scientist, right? Because anyone really can be a scientist. All you need is to be curious and ask questions. That's what we do. <laughs> and everybody, and for that, you need a brain. And thankfully, most of us, all of us, are born with a brain. And so when we switch to doing immersive games, it's more to build the, the identity of science for kids so that they can see, oh, I can be a scientist. So in our immersive games, um, the first one was BioDive, where kids pretend like they're diving. Same thing that we do. They go to four different locations all over the world. They dive into the sea, and they look and study the coral reef to see um, what's a healthy reef and what's a polluted reef. And in doing that, they learn about pH, and they learn about salinity, and they learn about nitrogen cycle. But they're doing it in a fun way because they're diving, and they're looking at these snails feeding on fish, and they follow sharks, and they do all kinds of things. So it's a way to make science um, accessible and to also make people understand that anyone can be a scientist. You don't have to be this you know, alien thing from Mars to be a scientist. You just really have to be very curious and want to ask a bunch of questions. And so the company, um, who Jessica Ochoa Hendricks is our CEO, she does everything, <laughs> um, right now is doing really well because we now have a series of games for high school, middle school, and uh, elementary school. We're working on the newest game called Waterway, and we have a Venom game coming out, which is going to be called Venom Collab. Also, an AR game where you can dissect a venomous creature <laughs> and, and look for the venom glands. So it's more about trying to make science not only fun, but make science something that students own and understand and say, hey, I can do this. I don't have to be somebody you know, in the US or in Europe or wherever. I can do science anywhere as a child because I'm fascinated by natural questions. Where can people find these games? So you have board games and you have video games. Where can they, can you promote this please? Oh, Where can sure. they go and get them? Yeah, so you can go to our website, killersnails.com. 
And we're also on Amazon, um, where you can search for the games. And if you come to New York, we're in the museum uh, gift shop at the American Museum of Natural History. And these games have won a lot of awards. Yeah. So they are really, really good. So exactly. That's amazing. Yeah, that was fun for us. That was really fun. Um, because we won one of the first awards we won was from Games for Change, and we were in a category not just of fun science games, so like not the nerdy games, but like in games in general. Oh wow. I mean, so that was really that was a breakthrough for us because that's we do a lot of testing before we put out the games. We it's an iterative process. We play with the students. We also have teachers who come. What's neat about the immersive games is that teachers can see what the kids are doing on the back end because a lot of teachers are worried about having um, the VR masks or other things in the classroom because they can't see what, yeah. what's happening. So in our our secret sauce is that uh, the teachers can see on the back end what the students are doing and they can prompt them and say, you know, to help scaffold their learning and make sure that they're having a good experience with, with what's happening in the screen. And so, yeah. Can you say again the, the website? Oh, yeah. The website is uh, killersnails.com. <laughs> And also, your lab website is pretty cool. Oh, I actually, <laughs> I actually took the snail quiz. Oh yes. From your website, and apparently, <laughs> snail are you? I'm a cone snail. Yay! <laughs> what, what, do you remember what you are? Oh, I don't remember what snail I was. I have to take it again. It might change, you know, because your moods change, and so you should take it again in two months and see can what you, snail you Can you, are. can you mention the, your lab website as well? Oh, um, our lab website is theholfordlab.com. Uh, and that, that snail game was made in collaboration with the Bishop Science Museum in Florida because they did a, a exhibition on, um, what was it? Uh, the Bowman. I have to remember the name of the exhibit. But it was very, very, very cool. And it was about snails, all about aggressive and predatory snails. I definitely encourage you to go check that lab site and that lab website and, and do the quiz because it's fun. <laughs> And then there's other two more things that blow my mind that I found in your website that are, that, are, that it's you have an art project, the oh. art of science uh, program, right? I participated in a lot of art and science programs uh, because I do think that like scientists, artists are trying to convey to society um, some information, and and they go through it in a similar way in in based on experimentation, right? So. In the lab, we try, try, try to do things half the time. It doesn't work. More like 90% of the time, it doesn't work. And I think science artists are similarly experimenting with different ways of expressing themselves. And so I always find it when there's an opportunity to collaborate with an artist, it's, it's a fun thing to do. So we did this LIGO project um, where we collaborated with artists to come into the lab. And they do like a residency in the lab to learn about the research. And then they will create a piece based on the time they spent with us. I like, I love doing that. It's always fun. That's amazing. And you're also writing a theater play. Is that right? I'm writing the play. No, <laughs> no, no. I, I help. I am involved with the ensemble theater in New York um, through the Sloan Foundation Science and Society program, where uh, I help to read plays that are have uh, from playwrights that have a science sort of theme or character. Um, and so we sort of, I serve on this commission to read the plays and, and workshop them with the playwrights to get them to the stage on the ensemble theater. That's super cool too. Yeah. <laughs> and since you mentioned museums so much, I really liked something that you said in your TED talk, that is that your parents use the museum as a daycare for you, yes. right? So they would 
they would let you run around in the museum and within one condition, let's meet at, yeah. under the dinosaur at 5.30 or something like that. Yeah. And I guess that's, that, that for sure must have been a huge inspiration for you to become a, a woman in science, right? Yeah, you would think so. I'm, I'm one of five though, so I wasn't alone running around the museum. So it was me and my elder siblings uh, and my younger siblings. And yes, because they felt, you know, this was the New York in the 80s, I guess, so it's very different. But um, so yes, it was inspirational because, but at the time, we just wanted to go see the dinosaurs or the animals or whatever. And we didn't think that this was science, really. It was more, it's fun to discover what's happening in Africa or let's go see a space show or, you know, this kind of stuff. But, but as you, you get older, and this is kind of why we're making the, the games, right? It's because the excitement of discovery, the excitement of learning something new is very key to being a scientist. And so to do that, again, requires just asking questions. And we want to make sure that we're getting enough people in the field to ask the different kinds of questions. Otherwise, it's going to be everyone working on P53, right? Not, not P53, but we want to make sure that we're getting a diversity of voices in, in science so that we can have a diversity of questions. And so it was running around the hall looking at the, you know, the learning that the, the in the Hall of African Elephants, um, or African ma mammals, that the, the elephant in the front is always the grandmother. So the oldest woman elephant, or the oldest female elephant, she's not a woman, <laughs> the female elephant leads the path, and then, you know, the males are bringing up the rear, which is something that you don't know unless you're in the museum so much, <laughs> that you ask questions of the doses, and you're like, what is this, and what is that, and you figure out all these cool things. That makes you think about not only the science but life in a different way, right? So for me, the museum represents discovery and the fun of learning science in, in a way that is discovery-driven and being able to ask questions. And that's sort of what MBL does too. It's sort of this place to come and make these aquatic models that are never been thought of before, but can help you in assisting and asking a lot of questions. To round out this amazing conversation, I have to ask you: Have you ever been? stung or bitten by a venomous animal? No, I have not. Thank goodness. <laughs> Wait, no, I haven't. No, 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 I have not. <laughs> I was thinking I got bitten by a bee, but it wasn't me. It was my daughter. But no, I have not. And I don't encourage anyone to go and try it out. And then I have a couple of pop culture questions. I'll try. <laughs> um, do you know any famous people that were killed by venomous animals? No. No, I don't know any famous people that were killed by venomous animals. We know a lot of poisoning that has happened from toxins, but not from a venomous animal, no. What about your most famous or your preferred movie scene that has venomous animals? Okay, there, there are two. The first one is in Jurassic Park, the second Jurassic Park. The hunter dips his uh, arrow in comb snail venom to bring down the T-Rex. This is something, this is like a book I'm waiting to write, a children's book about the snail that brings down the T-Rex. I think it's so good. <laughs> I think it's fantastic. And then uh, the second one is that there used to be this series in the U.S. called Hawaii Five-O. This I didn't know. After I gave a talk, someone sent this to me. And there was an episode where um, the villain 
was going around throwing cone snails on people to to kill them. <laughs> and, they, and so I was like, oh, this is very weird. But it's a very funny episode because he's like holding the snail and throws it at someone to envenomate them and kill them with the snail toxin. And in the beginning, the cops don't know what's killing everyone, what's going on. So those are the two stories. <laughs> what about superheroes that use venom? Yeah. So there is, of course, Venom from Spider-Man. But Venom actually isn't venomous, he's poisonous because he gets his venom from an outside species, right? That entity that came in. So I always write to the people at Marvel and I'm like, you know, Venom's not venomous, he's poisonous. (laughs) (laughs) For him to be venomous, it had to come from him. And it did. (laughs) But um, we always try to make up a Captain Venom. We don't have one yet. We'd love to make. So this is for your audience. If anyone has a suggestion for a cartoon character, like what Captain Venom would look like, please send it in to Mateo and he'll send it to me. <laughs> Thank you so much for this time in Science Stories. Did you have a good time? Oh, I had a great time. Thank you so much for the invitation. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Science Stories. Yay! Wow! 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 wow.